Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes to this church, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, which God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When you purchase a diamond, the jeweler displays the stones on a piece of black velvet. He knows that a dark backdrop will brighten the appearance of the diamonds. Well, here in Romans chapter 3, Paul displays the diamonds of salvation. He puts on exhibit these magnificent stones, the glory, the grace of God, shine and twinkle for all to see. In fact, God invites the world into the gallery to gawk and gaze to show its gratitude for the salvation he offers. But Paul, you see, is a shrewd jeweler. And so he presents these brilliant diamonds against the black velvet of man's sin. You see, the first three chapters of Romans describe the total depravity of the human race. You read these three chapters in one sitting and you'll become depressed. I mean, the picture is ugly. The outlook is grim. In fact, by the middle, the time you reach the middle of Romans chapter 3, mankind is down for the count. Every one of us is lost and condemned and damned to hell. Look at chapter 3 with me. Verse 10. It slams the lid on the coffin. There is none righteous. No, not one. Verse 11. Drives the nails into the lid. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Verse 12, lowers the coffin into the ground. There is none who does good. No, not one. Verse 23, shovels the dirt on top of the vault. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There you have it. The death and burial of the entire human race. Paul guns us all down with the machine gun of repetition. There is none, there is none. There is none, there is none. I think that rules out everybody. There is none. Paul uses the none gun to shoot down all our pride, all our self-righteousness. The truth of our sin cuts our legs out from under us. It's impossible to think that we can stand on our own. You see, by the middle of chapter 3, 
the velvet is as dark as it can get. Remember, that's God's intention. For the darker the backdrop, the brighter, the more beautiful the diamonds. Picture Paul the jeweler. He spreads out his ebony cloth and he sprinkles out four sparkling, brilliant diamonds. On our own, our situation is hopeless. You could never afford these expensive gems on your own. But God has devised a means of obtaining them that doesn't depend on us. He's worked it up by His wisdom. He's worked it out by His grace. It was accomplished and paid for by Jesus on the cross. This morning, I want us to marvel at the diamonds of salvation. In Romans chapter 3, Paul displays four beautiful stones. Justification, redemption, propitiation, vindication. And the mere sound of those words should send goosebumps up and down your spine. They should make us all giddy. They should thrill us. These four words should be music to our ears. Huh. But what if we don't understand them at all? I mean, these are pretty big words. What's a justification? Or a redemption? Or a propitiation? Or a vindication? What in the world does that mean? Reminds me of the pastor's son. Having been raised in church, the young boy had always heard these theological terms, these words like justification and propitiation and so forth. But he'd never really taken the time to learn what they'd meant. Well, one day at school, the teacher asked her class, she said, What's the definition of the word procrastination? The pastor's son, he raised his hand and he answered. He says, well, I'm not sure, but I sure know my church believes in it. Well, today I want to discuss these four big words. And I'm telling you, once you grasp them, they'll be your best friends forever. You've heard it said, diamonds are a girl's best friends. Well, that's certainly true of Jesus' girl, his bride, the church. These diamonds of salvation will capture your heart forever. Well, notice the first diamond of salvation. It's justification. Verse 24 tells us, we are being justified freely by his grace. Biblically speaking, to justify a person is to treat that person as if they've always been just and righteous and sinless. It's to be viewed by God just as if I'd never sinned, justified. See, here's how God treats the person who puts their faith in Jesus. Once there was a rich English man, a gentleman who purchased a Rolls Royce. He had the car shipped to France where he planned a journey across Europe. Yet a few days into the trip, the car broke down. Well, the man called the dealership back in England to see if they could provide him some assistance. Well, immediately, a crew of mechanics were flown across the English Channel. They worked nonstop until the repairs were complete. When the man arrived home in England, he expected a hefty bill for this extraordinary service that the Rolls-Royce mechanics had provided him. But a bill never came. Well, a few weeks later, he called and he inquired about the cost. He was so surprised when the clerk at the dealership replied, What bill? He told the lady, he said, Well, why the bill for all those repairs that you made on my car in France? 
She said, what repairs? He said, well, surely you remember the team of mechanics that you flew across the English Channel to France to work on my car. Please check your records. After a long pause, the lady replied, sir, I'm sorry, but we have no record of any Rolls Royce ever breaking down and needing repairs. Now that's how every car dealership ought to work. Understand, justification doesn't mean that God ignores our breakdowns. Oh, He's quick to fix us. He even sends us help. But He keeps no record of our malfunctions. He considers the sin as having never happened. God services us. He tunes us up. He fixes our flats. He repairs the damage caused by our sin. And then He never charges us a dime. Now, how's that for a pretty good warranty? You see, justification includes forgiveness. But it's more than forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is me paying off your credit card debt. But then you can run it up again, can't you? No, justification goes further. It's me paying off your credit card debt, then supplying you a line of credit so that you'll always have a positive balance. Jesus guarantees that his followers will never suffer from insufficient funds. Notice 2 verse 24 here. It doesn't say that we've been justified, but we are being justified. It's in a continuous tense. God is constantly treating you and me as if we'd never sinned, even when we do. You see, how He handles us is always the same. It remains the same despite our performance. Certainly, it grieves God when we sin, no doubt. And He works in us to mature us so that that sin doesn't keep happening. But understand, God never alters how He's chosen to treat us. God never has once told one of his children, Okay, sister, that's it. I've had enough of you. Hit the road until you come back and straighten out the mess you've made. He never says that. God has never once said to a believer, Oh, forget about any blessing until you measure up. That never happens. You see, justification is God's decision to favor us despite our sin. See, we all need to settle this issue once and for all in our minds and hearts. As long as we're trusting in Jesus, God is committed to treating us as justified. And realize the full impact of what this means. You never again should feel timid or fearful about approaching God. Even when you're not doing so well, He wants you to call on Him. He's ready, he's as ready to bless you when you're struggling as when you're soaring. Justification means that the terms of God's treatment never ever changes. He looks to you through eyes of grace and you receive from him with hands of faith. I read of a Bible college professor who was a godly man, a spiritual man. When he walked into the classroom, he just oozed with God's grace just kind of glowed with the glory of God. His students wanted to uncover the secret of his holy and heavenly life. And so one night, they hid in the bushes outside his window to listen to the man pray. And they anticipated a fervent, passionate, pleading prayer. 
They were shocked when the old fellow, he jumped into bed, pulled up the covers, and then he sighed. God, I thank you that we're on the same old terms. But that's what it means to be justified. That no matter what happens, no matter how well I perform in Christ, I am always on the same old terms with God. Aren't you glad? Now let's get back to the earlier picture. Diamond dealing Paul. He spreads out his ebony cloth. And he sprinkles out on the countertop four priceless, pure, sparkling diamonds. It's amazing. He lays the pouch down. The girl by your side squeals with delight. She's just about to squeeze the blood out of your arm, anticipating that diamond. When all of a sudden you start looking at the price tags, perspiration begins to appear on your forehead. That wad of money in your pocket starts to shrink. Now, imagine you standing there, and the salesman suddenly scoops up those four diamonds, puts them in a pouch, and hands them back to you, and he tells you, please take them. They're all yours. These diamonds are my gift to you. Just enjoy them and be thankful for them and tell others about them. What if that happened to you? You'd faint on the spot. You'd pass out. And yeah, that is exactly what God has done. Verse 24 says that we've been justified freely. The word translated freely, it means without a cause. There is nothing in us or about us, nothing that we've done or are or ever hope to be that can warrant this kind of treatment from God. Nothing. Romans 3 tells us that the price was played by His blood. This is what Jesus did on the cross for you and me. His sacrifice enables God to love me and to treat me as justified. Now it comes to me as grace, as unmerited favor. This is love that's on the house. No virtue can merit this kind of treatment from God. The only explanation for why God deals with me so kindly is that He loves me. Once there was a little boy who visited the Washington Monument. He walked up to the soldier on duty, pulled out a quarter, and asked if he could buy the monument. Well, the soldier chuckled. Oh, not for a quarter. But the little wheeler dealer wasn't through. He said, I thought you'd say that. Pulled and reached in his pocket and pulled out another dime. Well, after the soldier had finished laughing, he explained. He said, Sonny, realize three things. First, you can't buy the Washington Monument. Not for 35 cents or for $35 million. It's too expensive. Second, it's not for sale. And third, if you're an American citizen, you don't need to buy this monument, for it already belongs to you. Well, you see, many believers, they long to feel forgiven. We want to be confident in our relationship with God. We want to believe that God is as good as I've described Him this morning. The problem is, is that our confidence wanes in light of our own weakness and our own failures. When I get burdened down by my own sin and guilt and failure, I tend to draw back from God. 
I assume that I have to earn my way back into his favor. I start to assume, man, after what I've done, i got to buy the monument. But justification is not for sale at any price. It's way too expensive for you. It requires what you don't have, and that's sinless blood. And if we put our faith in Jesus, it already belongs to us. The bottom line is that God justifies in spite of us, not because of us. Try to achieve a level of performance so that you'll feel deserving of God's blessing, and you've missed the whole point. We've been justified by God's grace and the work of Jesus. Well, the second diamond of salvation is redemption. In verse 24, Paul adds that we've been justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, there are actually several different Greek words that get translated into this one English word, redemption. One is the word agorazo. It's from the word agora, which referred to the city center or the marketplace in Greek cities, the place where the slaves were auctioned and sold. The word agorazo referred to the purchase of a slave. And if you're a Christian, you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are now His purchased possession. Did you know that Jesus holds a title on your life? Through the blood of His Son, God has purchased you out of sin slavery. You're no longer your own. You now belong to Jesus. You are agorazo. Problem though, that's not the word that's used here. There's another Greek word. It gets translated ex agorazo. It too referred to the purchase of a slave, but ex agorazo spoke of a permanence. You see, many Roman landowners, they bought slaves to help in the fields, then sold them back after the harvest time. But a slave purchased ex agorazo was never returned. He or she became his master's permanent possession. And this is also how Jesus sees us. His plan is not to just use you up and then return you or throw you away. He loves you. He wants you forever. You're his permanent possession or ex agorazo. But neither is that the word used in our text. No, the word translated redemption here in verse 24 is the word laturo. And it refers to the practice of purchasing a slave for the purpose of setting them free. And this is also what Jesus has done for you and me. He bought us out of spiritual slavery to set us free from the pain and guilt and condemnation and sin that held us down. All that holds us back, all that keeps us down, He wants to set us free. He wants to deliver us. Jesus purchased you to restore you to all that God meant for you to be. There were two factory workers. They labored side by side for years. One was the classic underachiever, always late, chronically lazy, always on the verge of getting fired. But one day, his co-worker noticed a remarkable change in this man. It seemed overnight, the slothful man began to care about his job. He turned into a productive employee, a pleasure to work with. His entire attitude had changed. His co-worker couldn't stand it. He had to ask him why. And he heard an amazing story. 
You see, when this fellow was in college, he had been involved in a fraternity hazing. One night, they had taken a few freshmen to a long, dark, graveled road for a so-called test of nerve. They put the freshmen in the middle of the road, and they drove straight at them. The kids were supposed to wait as long as possible before leaping to safety. Tragically, one of the young men froze. And the factory worker was the guy driving the car that hit the boy going 70 miles per hour. The man's foolish action haunted him the rest of his life. Oh, he avoided prosecution, but he dropped out of school. He became an alcoholic. Tried to drown his pain with alcohol. That one incident sucked the very life out of him. He lost all motivation. He could never forget the look of terror on that boy's face just before the car he was driving hit him. That is until one day he received a visitor. It was the mother of the young man that he had killed. She said that she had hated him for years, that she had done all that she could to plot his revenge, her revenge. But recently, she had given her life to Jesus Christ. And now, because of his forgiveness, she wanted to forgive the man who had killed her son. The man said to his friend about that mother's visit, I looked deep into her eyes that morning and received permission to be the kind of man I might have been had I never killed that boy. Her forgiveness changed my life. It was her pardon that bought this man his freedom. This is the meaning of redemption. And if you look closely, my friend, this morning, if you look closely at the cross of Jesus Christ, you too will find permission to start over. For Jesus wants to help you be the person that you might have been, that you could have been. This is why He purchased you, to set you free, to make you all He intends for you to be. Whatever it is you've done, whatever it is that's haunted you for years, Listen to the words of God this morning. You are forgiven. You have God's permission now to start over. I told you these diamonds of salvation were beautiful. These are dazzling stones. And the third diamond is equally spectacular. It's the jewel of propitiation. Verse 25 refers to Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now notice in times past, when judgment was due, God had restrained His hand. There were countless occasions when God would have been just and fair in exterminating the whole human race. But he passed on the opportunity. Acts 17 verse 30 tells us that in times past, God winked at sin. In other words, he closed his eyes to all the evil that was occurring. And it wasn't that sin didn't bother him. No, sin bothered God greatly. I don't know about you, but I'm at the point these days where it's hard for me to even watch the nightly news. I mean, I get riled up. 
Kathy says, do we have to watch the news tonight? I don't like what it does to you. Let's watch Jeopardy. Here's the sample from one day, just one day this past week. A U.S. Navy officer and four Marines were gunned down in what looks like was an act of homegrown terrorism. A man was convicted of dousing his ex-girlfriend with drain cleaner and severely disfiguring her. A two-year-old died after being left in a hot car while the parents went into the house and took a nap. I'm getting upset right now. A TV special ran an, uh, an expose on the increasing child sex trafficking going on in America. And then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just goes on. The depressing news goes on and on. It's tough to stomach this stuff day in and day out. It makes you mad. Oh, but if it angers me, how do you think it makes God feel? I'm only exposed to mankind's evil for 22 minutes on the nightly news while God sees every grimy act done in every slimy place on this planet. Trust me, God gets extremely angry. It arouses His wrath. I read of the awful ordeal of a man in Tyler, Texas. His name was Robert Hardy. Hardy woke up one night and he went to check on his three-month-old son. When he walked into the boy's room, he found the bassinet had been tipped over. He quickly returned to the bedroom to see if his wife had come and taken the baby. She hadn't. They both ran downstairs in search of their child. Well, when Hardy went into his study, he noticed that the glass top on the tank where he kept his pet python had been pushed off. Here's what had happened. This 12-foot snake had escaped its tank, had slithered upstairs, had tipped over the bassinet, and had eaten his baby. Hardy was so enraged. He went nuts. He was so furious. He ran outside. He found his axe. And in a rage, he chopped up his snake into a thousand pieces. And who would blame him? The snake got what it deserved. And in the same way, God is so infuriated when He looks down on the snake-like actions of human beings. Predators slithering along, consuming innocent people, even children. God is outraged at the rapists and the child molesters and the terrorists. Imagine what God has to endure. Every day, He hears thousands of arrogant professors deny His existence. He observes politicians making laws that fly in the face of his own. He sees entertainers sing blasphemous songs and mock his only son who died to save them. Every day in a million ways, God's holy sensibilities are trampled on and violated. And not only by the snake-like actions of others. But I confess to you, I have slithered with the best of them at times. We've all been guilty of satisfying ourselves at the expense of other people. And I'm sure God has been tempted many times to pick up the axe and chop up the snakes. But He's waited. In fact, He waited for a day 
2,000 years ago, the day he nailed his only son to a Roman cross. And there, at that cross, God vented his anger, his outrage toward the sin of the whole world. He brought down his axe on his only son, Jesus. You see, the reason God had winked at sin in the past, had suppressed his righteous anger, is that he planned all along to one day take out his wrath on his only son. Sandy Adams deserved to be hacked into pieces. And yet God unleashed his anger towards me on his only son. I'm telling you, this is love that moistens the eyes, that boggles the brain. How could God love us like this? Yet He does. Which brings us to the definition of this long word, propitiation. It means to appease or to placate. You see, the justice of God is satisfied legally through justification, but it is satisfied emotionally through propitiation. There were two similar offerings in the Old Testament. The sin offering covered a person's sin, whereas the burnt offering presented a sweet aroma to God. You see, the sin offering justified man, while the burnt offering satisfied God. And today the cross of Jesus does both. It justifies us, and it also satisfies God's justice. God both vented his anger and outrage towards sin, and he proved his justice at the cross of Jesus Christ. See, when we trace this Greek word propitiation to its Hebrew origin, we discover it's the same word translated in the Old Testament as mercy seat. Remember in the Jerusalem temple, God's glory rested over an oblong-shaped box called the Ark of the Covenant. This was the box that Indiana Jones stole from the Nazis. You, you remember that. Well, in the ark, there were stone tablets on which God had written his law and had given it to Moses. And God intended to meet with man over the ark. In the Old Testament, he based our relation, or the basis of man's relationship with God was his obedience to the law that was written on those stone tablets. But this didn't bode well for sinners like us. We fail. We fall short. And since we're unable to meet up to that sacred standard, then how could we meet with God? We couldn't. And thus the law cried out for our judgment. Yet God put a lid on the law. For over the top of the ark set a golden, a solid gold slab, a lid called the mercy seat. And this was the place where the priest would sprinkle the blood that had been sacrificed for sin. Here the demands of the law were satisfied and God extended mercy. If you lived in Old Testament times and you wanted to meet with God and receive His mercy, the directions were clear. You headed to the mercy seat. And here Paul tells us that Jesus is our propitiation or our place of mercy. Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus alone kept all God's commandments and earned a right standing with God that He can now pass on to us. So, 
Where can I find God today? Where can I meet my maker and discover his kindness and his favor and his mercy? The directions are still crystal clear. The cross of Jesus is now and forevermore God's place of mercy. What a glorious diamond this is. And there's one more. There's one final diamond on display in this morning's text. In Romans 3 verse 23, Paul explains how your salvation has become God's vindication. You see, justification and redemption and propitiation, these first three diamonds produce in us a comfort and a hope and an assurance. They create in me a sigh of relief. My sin has been dealt with. But this last diamond of salvation, it takes my breath away. If the first three diamonds reflect God's grace, this fourth one reveals His glory. For Paul tells us that on the cross... Jesus vindicated God's character. In a single stroke of genius, God became both just and the justifier. Now realize that when we look at the cross of Christ, we do so from a very narrow, selfish point of view. We focus on only what Jesus did for us. Justification, redemption, propitiation. But there is another beautiful side of the cross. Years ago, songwriter Steve Camp, he had a song that he entitled, Christ Died for God. What a provocative title. Jesus not only died for you and me, he also died for God. He died to validate God's character. Jesus' motivation wasn't merely our salvation, but also God's vindication. You see, our sin puts God in a very awkward situation. He's pulled in two seemingly contradictory directions. On the one hand, His justice demands that we be punished, that we get what we deserve, what's coming to us. But on the other hand, God loves us, and His love compels Him to forgive us and fix us. You see, God wants to help us, but His justice can't let our sins slide. I mean, think about America's judicial system and today's crisis of confidence. We've let too many blatant criminals just walk, just get off with a slap on the wrist. No wonder we we question if our courts are still capable of meeting out true justice. You see, God won't allow this kind of erosion of confidence to occur in His court. That's why, as much as He loves us, He can't just allow us to get off scot-free. And that's why Christ died for God. For on the cross, Jesus made a way for God to save us and save face at the very same time. Through the work of Jesus at Calvary's cross, sin was punished and the sinner was forgiven. Jesus satisfied justice and set us free in the very same act. The story's told of a time when nomadic tribes, they roamed the plains of Siberia, much the same way that the American Indians covered the Great Plains. There was a Russian tribe with a strong, wise chief. This man was well respected. Once the camp fell victim to a series of thefts, the chief ordered the perpetrator caught 
and beaten with ten lashes. Apparently the threat did nothing to curtail the threat, the thefts. And so the chief, he upped the ante to 20 lashes, then 40 lashes. Of course, everyone knew that 40 lashes was a death sentence. There was only one tribe member sturdy enough, strong enough to survive such a beating. That would be the chief himself. What a shock it was when the thief turned out to be the chief's own mother. His own mother was the thief. The chief was tempted to just let his mom go, but he couldn't. He was a man of his word. Justice had to be served. The day came. The woman was tied to a stump. The executioner readied his whip. And just as the man was about to administer the first blow, the chief walked over and he walked over to the stump and he draped his huge body over his small, frail mother. And he took her lashes for her. Well, you see, God became a man. And he draped his body over all those who now trust in him. He is a righteous judge. And he is a loving son. And I am proud of him for being both. As they say, diamonds are a girl's best friend. And they may be. But these diamonds of salvation are every Christian's best friends. Justification, redemption, propitiation, vindication. Have you received them? Have you received God's free gift? I hope you have. If not, you can this morning. And if you have received these diamonds, are you proud of them? Do you wear them close to your heart? And everywhere you go, do you think about them often and talk about them with your friends and count them as your greatest treasure? You should. Well, today, you have a friend in the diamond business. And his name is Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. Praise the Lord.